Can we just talk about the fact that people are sleeping on Almond Joys? What? Like, like under they... their pillow? Ne- <laughs> what? No. <laughs> Yes, it's um, it's like the tooth fairy, but um, the opposite. So you put candy under your pillow, and then she leaves teeth just all around your house. It's very scary. What do people no. do with these said teeth? <laughs> you know, whatever you want. It, they're yours to do with. No. Okay, I'm what saying, do you mean? Like, Sorry, what do you mean then? <laughs> all joys are delicious, and I feel like people act like they are a trash candy. Oh, oh, you mean it like... Like I'm... sleeping on it, like how a millennial would say it. Is that a thing? Yes. Yeah, like when you're... Like people are sleeping on Carly Rae Jepsen. They're like not recognizing her talent. Like it's a it's a phrase. Yeah. It might be a gay thing. Maybe. I mean, I've heard the phrase like so-and-so's a sleeper. Like they're actually really good, but people don't know. So I guess I've kind of heard of this, but literally I... D- Okay, the things that went through my head were obviously wrong. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's this new thing that for Mattress is doing. It's made completely out of Almond Joy. It's for Halloween. <laughs> it's very strange. No. <laughs> no, but I had an Almond Joy today for the first time in maybe 15 years. Oh, and it was so good. They're delicious. They're de- But it's one of those I think you have to be an adult. Because, like, kids don't really like coconut. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking. I was like, I used to hate coconut as a kid, mostly the texture. And now I am a hoe for coconut candy. It is an adult thing. It's one of those, next thing you know, oh, wait, you already like butterscotch. So see, you're just getting older. I love butterscotch. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, this welcome to being old. It's just one of the other things to add to the list of what you notice. <laughs> I guess so. Um, but hi, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And apparently we're getting old, except we're not. We're, like, very youthful still. I know. And we just recognize how good Almond Joys are. But, you know, tell that to my right knee and right foot. (laughs) Oh, my God. Just both of my knees. I feel like when I, um, like, kneel down to, like, talk to someone at their desk at work, my knees go off like gunshots. (laughs) Mine don't pop, but getting up uh, is painful. (laughs) Yeah, no, getting up, I have to, like, flail a little bit and struggle. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, like, actually gripping onto, like, a chair arm to, like, raise myself. It's fine. Where you literally want to just, like, put your arm up and be like, can somebody help me, please? I can't get off the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Help me, my bones are weak. (laughs) Sorry, I crouched down because I wanted to be, like, you know, cool and, like, have this combo. But, like, really, I should have brought a chair over here. I made a mistake. (laughs) Help me, I have weak bones. I'm lactose intolerant, so I don't drink milk. Get me off the floor. Oh, my God. Well, um... (laughs) Another thing about being old. Realizing you're lactose intolerant. Anyway. The the list could go on and on and on. They really can. (laughs) What are some of the favorite things that y'all found out as you <laughs> got old? Oh my god. Um, well, hey everyone. Hope you're having a really exciting week. It's yes. almost Halloween. Like Almost. It's almost time for this. And I think we talked about costumes or something last time. about, Or maybe about how Halloween is like a... It's like gay Christmas. I think you were saying that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's true. Well, I'm sure most of y'all already know what you're doing for Halloween, um, and with that strong decision-making skill that you have developed, you should absolutely consider supporting us on Patreon. 
<laughs> make that decision. Um, but seriously, our Patreon supporters are those that help support us, bring this podcast to life. We also record additional content for them, Patreon only, Patreon exclusives. We've got our murder minis, which are more cases that you don't hear on our regular episodes, as well as our bottle talk, where we do like deep dives into different wine topics. Simple as like, what is a Cabernet Sauvignon? To what's the difference in old world and new world? So those are really fun to do. And like, we're learning along with you. So Mm -hmm. definitely love you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all of your support. And we, again, I believe last episode was a Patreon pick. So we have that level where you get to actually direct your own episode. So think about doing that and just think about how much you love us and you want us to keep doing this and how we need your help to do so. Absolutely. Also, make sure to subscribe to us on your podcast listening platform of choice. Um, Depending on how you listen to us, you should be able to hit that subscribe button, and then you'll get notified when we have new episodes release every Tuesday. Yes. Well, so this is an episode that some of y'all, I think, have been waiting for for a while, We mentioned to you guys in our cults episode that we would do something special, and it's now happening. Today we're going to talk about... Now's the day. Now's the day. Today's the day. We're going to talk about Jonestown. Boom. And this is such a huge case that we're actually going to talk about it together. So we're going to try a different style for today's episode. We have one case, a really deep dive into it, and we're going to share this case with you guys. So there won't really be a winner. Um, So next week, in the next episode, I will also be picking the topic for that one. Uh, But Basically, I feel like there's no true way. There's not a winner to this one. You can't be like, who did better at presenting their part? Um, (laughs) (laughs) But like, because technically I lost the last episode, so I did pick this topic. But again, I had mentioned we were going to do it. Felt like now was the time. But I'll Mm -hmm. also pick the topic for the next week as well. Because you know what? I've got some good ones in mind. I'm I'm ready. But Jonestown is something that I believe we've all at least heard of. Um, You may not know all the details. I sure know I learned a lot doing research that I did not know beforehand. Oh, same. Like, I just know the general drink the Kool-Aid, which by the way, guys, stop using that phrase. You'll understand why after we go through all the, this whole case. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty fucked up. But yeah, so this is going to be a really interesting episode. I'm looking forward to sharing this case with you, Ty. This will be fun. Uh, Not fun topic, but fun to do this together. Yes. But first, um, I'm going to get into my wine, because I know I'm going to need it for this episode. And I have a very interesting uh, wine for everyone today. Honestly, um, I'm really excited about my wine as well. But gonna be honest, I went to a football game yesterday, and I was a little hungover, like I drink a lot of beer. Uh, So I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about drinking wine, but I'm up for it. Now that the time has come, I am rallying. I put on my big girl pants. I'm going to drink this wine. Yeah, I um, (laughs) kind of made a similar decision two days ago and had quite a bit of wine. And so here we are. Oh my God. That's the other thing about getting old. Hangovers are no longer like a pop an aspirin and drink some water and you're good to go. Grab a Gatorade and, you know, continue on your day. It's like two days you're out. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. All right. Well, with that, let's jump into the wine. Let's do it. 
So the wine that I'm drinking today is the 2017 Brie Riesling from Falls, Germany. Brie like the cheese? Well, B-R-E-E, like the name. Gotcha. Uh, Riesling, wow. I'm interested in what you picked. Not for myself, but for what you're going to think of it. Well, I don't think we've ever done a Riesling. We have. Or we, we've, we have? Okay. We did um, a dry Riesling. Because remember, uh, like, I told you I'd find a Chardonnay you would like, and you told me you'd find a Riesling I liked, and we both succeeded. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, this one is not that. This one is definitely the epitome of, ooh, that's a cool bottle, I'm gonna buy it. Because, honestly, it looks like a bottle of vodka. <laughs> it looks like a bottle of Ciroc. So it's like the straight-up cylinder kind of thing. Yeah. Um, has some very modern, fun-looking font. Feels like I'm in a club in Berlin. Don't think I would be drinking wine there. No, but, I don't think know. so either. Um, but yeah, so we're going to try this. And then it was only after I bought it that I saw it is definitely on the semi-sweet to sweet range of things. And I was like, oh, okay, here we go. I really so, am interested to see what you're going to think. <laughs> me too. Um, so Germany's best vineyards are the world's northernmost vineyards, and they're basically as far north as grapes can grow. And a lot of these vineyards are on land that is not really fit for growing crops or agriculture. So basically, if the grapes weren't there, it would just be forest and bare mountains. I am literally picturing like, just like a winter wonderland, but like desolate, nothing there. Maybe not winter wonderland yet, but, I mean, northern Germany, the mountains, I don't know if I'd call them mountains, but the hills and forests are definitely, um, I mean, I guess, yeah, in the winter, they do get winter wonderlandy, so. Are the hills alive with the sound of music? Sometimes. But that's in Austria, though. Not Germany, right? Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, anyways, Germany, not generally a place that you would think would be able to grow wine in general, let alone some of the most amazing wines in the world. But their secret is this balance between sugar and acidity. A wine that was sugar without acid would be flat, and something that's acid without sugar would be basically undrinkable. So in good wines, they're very finely balanced, and the German winemakers have kind of perfected that art. So high-quality German Riesling wines are described as some of the world's great wines, and because Riesling is rarely made with oak or blended with other grapes, its dry wines showcase its pure green apple, citrus, and peach flavors with bright and refreshing acidity, and its sweeter versions offer these unique flavors of tropical fruit, honey, spice, smoke, and even sometimes a hint of petrol or gasoline. Smoke and gasoline? You know, that's what I want from a sweet wine. I mean, honestly, it's one of those flavors that you're like, whoa, that's weird, but I kind of get it. I see what you mean. Okay, you're going to have to tell me if you taste those, because that's interesting. Yeah, we'll see. So this wine in particular, it's a good starter wine for the evening. It's light yellow in color, um, and a lot of that is due to it being a very young Riesling. It has notes of fresh apple, peaches, and pear. It's refreshing, crisp. There's also, people note notes of 
passion fruit and melon and it's a pretty medium bodied this person said it was semi-dry and not overly sweet i had an i saw another person that talked about it being like too sweet for them so i honestly have absolutely no idea what i'm about to get myself into but it is a screw top I'm basically thinking it's going to be like when you go to 7-Eleven, you're filling up gas and you go inside and you get one of those little plastic containers of cut up cantaloupe and you like eat that outside while you're waiting on your gas to fill up. This is not something I've ever done. I'm just trying to... like, I've (laughs) never done that in my life, but I'm just trying to combine the melon with the petrol because still not really following that, but you're about to drink 7-Eleven. Have fun. But German. So, a 7-Eleven on the Autobahn. If I knew how to say 7 and 11 in German, I would. But I don't. I only know how to count up to three in German. Eins, zwei, drei. Well, it's more than me. That is a very light yellow. It is. While you get ready to taste that, I will tell you about the wine I picked for today's episode. So, along the lines of had lots of beer yesterday, wasn't really feeling a heavy red today, so I went with a white as well. Um, This is the 2017 Mecon Village Vielle Reserve Chardonnay from Cave de Lugny, and that it's a French wine, it's a French Chardonnay, and Cave de Lugny is located in the Maconnet countryside, and it's proud of its origins and history, which has made it a specialist. Wait, the wine itself is proud? The winery is Cave de Lugny. Oh, sorry. So from Cave de Lugny is where the wine's from? Oh, it's okay, dude. It's okay. But <laughs> I I just really need this wine. <laughs> the winery and probably the wine. I think the wine's also proud. <laughs> the wine is just like, yay me. It's like, yay for my history and my, where I'm from. It's just proud of where its origin. This wine uh, took that 23andMe test and it's happy. Well, and uh, it has become a specialist in Southern Burgundy wines. So the winery and the wine, they're experts. The winery, (laughs) they're very forward thinking, which is interesting because when we talked about, you know, side note, if you've listened to Bottle Talk, Old World versus New World, a lot of the time, Old World is very seeped in tradition. And it seems to me like this winery, it combines that historic and the origin, but they're also pretty forward thinking and they take a total quality approach. So they encompass not only the quality... (laughs) I don't know why I like made that a long word, but they think about the quality of the wine, but also the quality of the working conditions and the relationship between the employees, the producers, and the top quality customer service. So they're thinking oh, all of I these like things. That. Me too. Yeah. So this wine in particular, their Chardonnay, is sourced from the south of Burgundy, which is actually close to the village of Chardonnay itself. So this is did not know that that was a town. I didn't either, but literally, if I'm going to have a Chardonnay, apparently I should have one that's close to from Chardonnay. Yeah. It's a light, uh, it's a nice yellow straw color, uh, fresh citrus characters on the nose with some honeysuckle and lemon curd. And then the taste is a creamy texture with melon, toasted oak, minerality, and buttery notes with a medium acidity and an elegant fruity finish. Honestly, I'm not, I couldn't find a lot of information about this particular wine. That was from a few people's reviews that I've read on Vivino. Same. So I don't 
know if it was aged in oak or not, because normally oh. a French one would not be. It'd be steel, because it's, again, we talked about, like, New World Chardonnay is generally oaked, Old World is not. So I'm interested to see what this is going to taste like, but it's really good yeah. with pasta, vegetarian meals, and cured meat. So apparently you can, I don't know, everything. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I like vegetarian meals and cured meat. So like literally both ends of the spectrum. <laughs> well, I'm like vegetarian meals. I'm like, so are we talking like Indian food? Are we talking like a nice roasted summer squash? Are we talking about like... Beyond burgers, like I know, like literally, this. is this roasted veggies or a bowl of mac and cheese? I guess which technically oh. that would be pasta. So yes, it is. Oh my god, this goes great with mac and cheese. I mean, what doesn't go great with mac and cheese? That's the truest statement ever spoken. Right? Okay, but it is a regular cork, so I'm gonna get into this. What does your smell like? A Chardonnay. Now I can smell that minerality. Let me. Okay. Let me pour it in my glass and let me tell you. Ooh, melon. Wow. Okay, mine smells like a fresh cut up cantaloupe. Mine has more of that citrusy, but I've got melon, minerals, and citrus. But it's got a sweeter smell, and I think that's the melon that I'm smelling. Okay, well, I say let's um, cheers and dive into this wine. Cheers and chug. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Whoa, this is a lot sweeter than most Chardonnays I've had. fuck me, that's sweet. (laughs) So, sounds like we both got some sweet wine. Sounds like you were a little bit more shocked by it. Why? I don't know, considering you're the one that bought a Riesling. (laughs) Again, I just read that someone said it was semi-dry. Okay. I also have not had a sweet wine in years, so I forget that that's what wine can taste like. Yes, yes it can. Um, Well, with your uh, outburst you had there, I'm going to let you just jump into your wine first, and then then I'll talk about mine. (laughs) But I feel like I I need to follow that, I guess. Yeah, um, so it's not bad. As much as my outburst uh, may make you believe, (laughs) it is not a bad wine. Definitely notes of green apple, very much cantaloupe. That's basically, those two are what I'm tasting. It is sweeter. It's not undrinkably sweet. I will drink this whole bottle of wine. Um, It's a solid Riesling. I mean, it is not as sweet as uh, Funf or uh, what's the blue bottle that everyone had in college? Relax. Relax. What's what's Funf? Funf is um, actually uh, the number five in German, I think. Um, I don't know. It's another bottle of Riesling. They're like $3, so. Um, And... Those are sweet. This one is definitely not as sweet as that. So if you don't mind sweeter wines, this would be a great summer wine. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, Definitely just something I'm going to need to get used to. But I'm a fan. Also, it was like $8 from Total Wine. Oh, nice. I forgot to say how much mine was. I got mine at Whole Foods. I was about to say World Market, but that's not the right place. I got it at Whole Foods. (laughs) Um, And... It's, it was like $12. This one, I get a lot of the melon and the honeysuckle. I'm not getting buttery notes. I, I'm really not. I would say this is an unoaked Chardonnay. Um, so, so that's one that I would enjoy? I think you would enjoy this, but it's sweeter than I'm used to. You're telling me. It's good. I feel like I need to chill it more or something. 
I don't know if I got this one cold enough. And to me, like a white wine really does need to be cold enough. Yeah. I also like, and maybe you're not supposed to do this. I don't know. But I like chilling my glass. Like you do with with a mimosa. Chill it. Oh. Or a beer, honestly. That's most of when you chill glass. But this is a good solid Chardonnay if you like unoaked. I, again, I always prefer the buttery notes. This one doesn't have it. But it's got this honey, melon touch of minerality it's not as strong as i was anticipating normally when i read that something has notes of minerals i expect to be able to taste that and it to be a little bit heavier but this one's Mm -hmm. not so this is a smooth medium easy drinking wine i would actually venture to say it's a low acidity maybe not medium maybe it does maybe we say it's medium because of the lemon but um your face is literally making my day right now by the way (laughs) it's just it's kind of like you know what the sweetness level is that of like a sprite or a seven up or kool-aid only time i'll say that oh god no too dark i know but um honestly i will say um i'm mostly just annoyed that i don't feel like i'm tasting any petrol and i was excited i mean it smells so good taste probably not don't ever taste Fair. it. Do not ever yeah, taste don't, gasoline. Don't drink gasoline, y'all. Well, but um, all right. Okay. We have our wine. Now let's jump into our case. One singular. I don't know. Whatever. Yes. Get into your part. <laughs> yes. Tyler's gonna kick us off here. So, as Brittany told y'all earlier, we're gonna be covering the t- tail. <laughs> <laughs> not a tail. It's a case. We're gonna be covering the case of jonestown and its founder jim jones so the sources that we use today the article jonestown by history.com the article jonestown by allison eldridge on encyclopedia britannica the article the tragic story of the jonestown massacre modern history's largest mass quote-unquote suicide by kellen perry from all that's interesting and the article Visiting Jonestown, site of the largest murder-suicide in modern history by Julie Fenwick from Vice. Yeah, and that really is a big topic that we'll be touching on throughout the, the case, honestly. The whole, like, suicide versus murder versus how someone's control over you can make you make decisions. It's just... It's a very, it's hard, like, even just looking at article titles, it's like, oh, okay, was this a mass suicide or was this a mass murder? What, how do you define something like that? And we're not going to go too deep into the psychology, but I just wanted to point that out because of those titles. No, I mean, it's a big, it's a big contingency and a big issue on really what this was, who was culpable enough to be considered and aggressor is not the right word, but that's the word coming to mind, versus victim. Right. And, you know, how many people can be considered both? Totally. Perpetrator. Perpetrator. Yeah. Yeah. So the story of the Jonestown Massacre and all of this, it really starts with Jim Jones. And he was born May 31st, 1931 in rural Indiana. And... He always saw himself as this religious leader. He opened his first church in the mid-1950s in Indianapolis, and in order to start raising money to open this church, he tried a bunch of different things. He was a very charismatic person, so sales came naturally to him, and 
just for example of how fucking weird this is, one of his ventures to raise money for the church was selling live monkeys door to door, which is, which is definitely no. illegal. It's definitely illegal. Also, does this mean there were like people in the 30s in Indiana that just like had some fucking baboons and stuff instead of a dog? I I think so. It's so which weird is... to me. Like, there are people who have, like, oh, yeah, my Midwestern-ass grandparents, their pet growing up was Bubbles, the fucking chimp. No, that's weird. Also, monkeys can live, like, 50 years. Someone could have had a monkey into the 80s that Jim Jones (laughs) sold them. Oh, my God. I want to read that story. I... (laughs) (laughs) I just think it's so weird. It is. Don't don't have monkeys as a pet if you're not, like, a zoo or a wildlife refuge. Yeah, but, like, maybe just definitely don't bring a monkey into your home. Don't bring a tiger. Don't be one of those people that thinks you need an exotic animal as a pet. You mean Florida? It's literally. Like, these people that have, like, tigers as pets, I'm like, oh, that's really cute. You're, like, laying down in bed with your tiger. And while it is a dream of mine to pet a tiger... I don't want to share my bed with one because they could, like, wake up in the middle of the night, I might smell good, and then, like, there goes my head. So. The only tiger I want in my bed has a golf club between his hands, and I'm not talking about on the range. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't even know how to respond to that, because I was following for a moment, and then you just, like, threw a curveball, and I just... My reaction changed so quickly. I know you saw it on my face, but... I did. Um, again, I'm still auditioning um, forever to be a part of the reboot of Sex and the City. Call me. I will be Samantha. But you'll just go by Sam. Yeah. Perfect. I've still never seen the show. Sometimes. Um, okay, sorry. So, go ahead. Jim Jones, monkey salesman extraordinaire and new <laughs> pastor. Oh my god. Um, So, at the time he opens this new church, it's not affiliated with any denomination, and he also had no theological training. So, he just literally opened a church. Yeah, he's like, I want to open a church, here it is. His congregation was known for being very racially integrated, which was really progressive for this time. In 1960, his congregation, which at this time was calling themselves the People's Temple was affiliated with the Disciples of Christ. And four years later, Jim Jones was ordained in that church. Well, and this was, like you were saying, it was insanely progressive. At this point in history, all the civil rights movement is going on. Like, this is, you know, there's still, everything is separated between blacks and whites. So that him having this church, which is seen as this, you know, foundation for the people that was integrated was a big deal oh yeah i mean that was something that didn't happen at this time right or was very rare and very progressive so very interesting note especially because of what we're gonna get into so by the mid-1960s he and his wife incorporated the people's temple in california and they settled outside of the town of yukai in california which is in Mendocino County and is in wine country because check it out. Check out the People's Temple Winery. I don't know if they have Oh a my god, they don't. Like I mean I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say that doesn't exist. Fair. Pretty pretty um, sure that if it did, they would not survive. Uh agree. 
I'm just saying. You're talking about a wine called the People's Temple, and you know what we've already talked about. So, like, that was... No, no, you're you're right. You're right. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Sorry about it. Anyways. um, So, yeah, he settles there with about 100 followers, and they believe that this move from Indiana to California would protect them in the event of a nuclear holocaust. Okay. Which... How? I mean... <laughs> I've never been to Indianapolis. I cannot imagine Indianapolis would be a target for um, nuclear weapons and not, like, the West Coast. Because they're not far from San Francisco. I think it's, like, 50 miles from San Francisco. So I'm like, okay. Okay. But maybe it's just something that because of the terrain, because of the rural and separated area, it just feels so much further. I don't know. Potentially. But, so yeah, they moved there. They're going to survive the nuclear holocaust. And in 1970, Jones began holding services in San Francisco. And by 72, he'd opened another temple in Los Angeles. In San Francisco, he became a pretty powerful figure. He got favor with public officials and the media. He donated money to a bunch of different charitable causes and he also delivered votes for various politicians when it came to election time. So he had a lot of power. He did. He's very well-known, very influential, and I mean, people liked him. Yeah. Well, I mean, the People's Temple was seen as a good thing. Absolutely. They ran social and medical programs for the needy. Um, that included, like, free dining hall and free food. They ran drug rehabilitation and legal aid services. And his message of social equality and racial justice, this attracted a very diverse group of followers. And this included idealistic young people who wanted to do something meaningful with their lives. So there's a lot of people that are really drawn to his message and what he's doing. Because it's not just he's saying, oh, I believe this. He's, you know... He and his uh, congregation are actually putting the work into it. They're showing that this is what they believe in. So they're getting a lot of people that agree with it. And it's scary because I could definitely see, you know, myself. If I saw that, I'd be like, hell yeah, love this church. I know. And that's what's so unfortunate about this is it starts out as such this positive thing. At least what is, you know, said about it and and what's influencing people to join, these are all extremely positive things. These are things that I would support today, just like you were saying. And so it's so unfortunate that this is how it started, or at least this is how it was portrayed. And then everything else we're about to go into that just fucking sucks. Like, I hate seeing something that is so intrinsically good, or is seen as something that is there for good, that is actually there for the exact fucking opposite exactly and i mean while the people's temple was very active in these humanitarian causes and in its communities jones's treatment of his followers was a lot less than humane temple members were regularly humiliated they were beaten blackmailed and many of them were coerced or brainwashed into signing over their possessions you know everything they owned their cars their homes They would sign it all over to the church. They convinced black members and members of other minority groups that if they left the People's Temple, they would be rounded up into government-run concentration camps. 
And they also forced family members apart and encouraged them to inform on or snitch on other members of their family. I don't even know how to respond to a lot of these things. Like, when we were looking this up, it just... Again, like, I I can't reiterate enough how much it pisses me off something good that's actually something evil. Oh, yeah. And it's... I mean, I'm like, God, you had every opportunity and you were placed in such a way that you could have been such a force of good and change. Yeah. And you fucking instead used it to ruin people's lives. And this is so messed up to brainwash and convince people of these things and to literally tell minorities that if they're not a part of your church, that instead they're going to go to concentration camps. I'm like, dude. Well, and you also have to remember that that's not that off of a threat. I mean, this is only 30 years removed from World War II, which had dozens of concentration camps in California for Japanese American citizens. I mean, it's... Yeah. So it's something that's saying this, and they're like, you know, a lot of these members grew up with that being the reality for people in their neighborhoods, or... Them and their families. Yeah. So it is something that's seen as not an empty threat. But again, on the outside, he has popular support and strong relationships with leading politicians, including First Lady Rosalind Carter and California Governor Jerry Brown. But at this point, the media was starting to turn on him. There had been several pretty high-profile members of the People's Temple that had defected, and the conflict between those that defected and the current members of the church was very vicious and very public. They were branded as traitors, and they lambasted the church, and the church smeared them in return. Yeah, so if you didn't happen to be a part of a minority group, but you were you know, an influential individual, and you were leaving the People's Temple, there were still consequences for that. Oh, absolutely. Nothing that you really could compare with the threat of a concentration camp style, like, even though, again, at this time that was a threat, but the people didn't really know that. Still, it just, the way the church turned and smeared these individuals is ridiculous. Yeah. But that, once that started coming out, once these reports from the inside and then the church very publicly attacking these people started come to light, that's when the media started to be like, okay, what the actual fuck is going on here? Yeah. So the meetings in the upper echelon of the church, you know, with the high profile members, they started to grow a lot more secretive. And they started planning very increasingly complicated fundraising schemes. These were a combination of staged healings, trinket marketing, and salacious mailings. So putting on these basically performances to convince people of their healing power and get people to give them money. At the same time, it's becoming clear to everyone that Jones is not all that invested in the religious aspects of the church. He was pretty much using Christianity as the bait and not the goal. That was how he'd get people in. But, you know, so for all intents and purposes like that, it's absolutely not a church in the traditional way of thinking. Right. His main thing was 
the social progress that he could achieve while having a fanatically devoted following behind him, which is just scary. That statement is terrifying. And his social goals were becoming more and more openly radical, and he began to attract the interest of Marxist leaders as well as some violent leftist groups. Because for a little um, insight into what's going on in America, and especially on the West Coast during this time, this is, I think, around the same time that, like, the Patty Hearst kidnapping was with the violent leftist SLA... And there are just a lot of different violent groups going on in the 70s. Well, and a lot of these things are overlapping in a way. Yeah. Especially, I feel like, in California. There's a lot of stuff going on in California in the 70s that was very negative. 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting because it's a lot of it is juxtaposed with, like, the hippie side of the social equality movement, which was very much like freedom and love and mm-hmm. very much a passive ideal yeah, coming in on the post-Vietnam era. And then you also have these groups that probably on paper share a lot of the ideals as the right. pacifist groups, but are going about it in a much more uh, militant way. Yes, that's it's. You put that very well. And during this time in the church, there is a shift and there's a bunch of defections. And not only is this just people leaving the church, but Jim Jones got personally involved with people leaving to the point where he would send out search parties and private planes to find these deserters and bring them back. So he's basically turning his congregation into a fucking prison it's definitely a cult now like that's what it's being regarded as oh yeah i mean that's when the official shift in the media tone went from calling it a church to calling it a cult yep i mean it's true so it's true if you're like quote-unquote pastor is searching for you with a fucking private plane just because you didn't want to come to that church anymore that there's an issue like that's a problem yeah That's not done out of the goodness of one's heart. (laughs) No, absolutely not. So at this time when all this is happening, Jones's congregation is growing. There's a lot of varying estimates, but one put the group size in 1977 at over 20,000. It's insane. And, you know, this is the same time that all these negative reports are surfacing and the media is looking into this man that everyone's referring to as father and they're starting to reveal just what life under Jim Jones is like. But see, that's the thing. Once someone is in the media, even if it's for negative things, there are people that feel like they want to investigate it. They want to check this out. They want to see if this really is what the media is saying. And like, honestly, we could, interlace this with today's world and how it's like fake news and people are like no or like oh let me check this out i'm not gonna believe this fake news like it's just it's like the more negative things that are in the media it almost draws people Mm -hmm. in oh absolutely i mean it because i think really what people come away with it is the name not necessarily the entire action because 
I think people oftentimes would be like, well, you can spin anything in any one way, depending on how you want to say, or you can just straight up lie. And so they're coming away being like, well, so-and-so's being talked about. And I'm like, okay. Right. But I also think there's a lot of people, not necessarily people being like, ooh, I could save him, but being like, ooh, he could save me. So I just know there's been a lot of stuff with people who've watched the Joker movie that I've seen a lot of people being like, honestly, I think I could have, like, saved him. And I haven't seen it, but I'm like, isn't the point of the movie that, like, that's not... Or isn't that, like, one of the points of the movie is, like, that? no, that's... There's not a one-person savior whatever. No, it's about society turning against someone who has a mental illness. And... There's, I mean, this is kind of a spoiler, but not really, but there's a scene in it about budget cuts and his sessions are cut off with with his therapist and therefore he can no longer get his medication because he doesn't have a therapist. He doesn't have a doctor that he's seeing weekly. And so it really goes into how much society needs to support people with mental illness so they can get help. And like, again, it is... Obviously a fiction, but that is very much rooted in reality. Oh, yeah. And I also think that, you know, kind of connecting it back to Jim Jones, he was doing that. He was doing these good things for these disadvantaged people and getting that, drawing them in because of that. Like I said, it is something that is seen as really good or was intentionally really good, but it's actually evil. Yeah. So at this point, Jim Jones is faced with this unflattering media attention and all these mounting investigations into what the fuck is going on with the people's temple. And he's also getting increasingly paranoid at this point in his life. He's often wearing dark sunglasses. He's traveling with bodyguards And he invited his congregation to move with him to Guyana in South America. And he promised them that there they would build a socialist utopia. So, little background. Just a few years earlier, in 1974, a small group of his followers had gone to Guyana to establish an agricultural cooperative in the jungle. And... Guyana is this small country in South America on the, uh, like, northern coast. I think it's between French Guyana and Brazil. There's, like, Venezuela, Suriname, French Guiana, Guyana, Brazil. They're all just kind of in that area. Right. That might not be the correct order, but there's three similarly sized countries right there. Guyana is one of them. And it had gained independence from Great Britain just in 1966, so like eight years before. Mm -hmm. And it's the only country in South America where English is the official language. So that was one of the big reasons why Jones identified it as like, oh, that's where we can go. So in 1977, Jones and more than a thousand of the temple members moved to Guyana. But... Jonestown did not turn out to be this paradise that he had promised them. A thousand people is a lot. That is a lot of people. Out of 20,000, it's a 20th of them. 
Yeah. To move. To literally I know, but pick that... up their lives and move to South America, which you can't, you literally can't just move to another country. Like, there's stuff involved, I would assume, to actually make that happen. I'm not sure about, like, the visas and the processes at this point in history, because it's not that long ago. So I, I would imagine, yeah, you would need documents and it'd be a process so i don't know maybe they literally just picked up everything and moved and decided that they'd figure that part out later and that they were going to establish this colony and it wasn't going to matter yeah honestly i feel like that's a little bit more likely but still the point i'm saying is a thousand people that's a lot of people for one man to convince to up their lives and move from california to guyana yeah i mean five percent of the entire congregation that's a lot it is and it's not even like he was in california saying guys let's move to nevada you know mm-hmm. it was a big move it was a to another country literally uproot your life move really far away and help establish this with me because this is where we're going to be safe and this is where we need to be so their lives in this compound are awful so during the day they're working 10-hour workdays, and in the evenings, Jim Jones is lecturing them and speaking at length on his fears for society. They would occasionally have movie nights, but instead of watching entertaining films, they would watch Soviet-style documentaries about the dangers, excesses, and vices of the outside world. Oh boy, this is great. But also... During their time here, rations were being very limited because instead of building this compound in, like, you know, lush fields, it had been built on poor soil. So basically everything had to be imported via negotiations that they made on shortwave radios because shortwave radio was the only way that the People's Temple could communicate with the outside world. And then on top of all of this, there were the punishments. So rumors escaped into the wider country of Guyana that cult members were harshly disciplined. They were beaten and locked into coffin-sized prisons, or they were left to spend the night in dry wells. So, like, at the bottom of a really fucking deep hole, which is terrifying. All of these punishments are terrifying. I mean, locked in a coffin-sized prison that you can't even roll over. Like, you are stuck in one position, and how that could ever, ever be seen as a type of punishment that could, like, better someone or whatever. He was trying to say, he's like, oh, this, like, church stuff, that's not a church, but, like, come on. Oh, you need to, you need to have time with your thoughts and rethink what you've done. Yeah, like. No, I mean, it's crazy shit. Yeah, like, you need to repent or whatever. Yeah, no, crazy shit. Well, and also, during this time... Jones is losing his grip on reality. His health is deteriorating, and to treat himself, he began taking what amounted to a nearly lethal combination of amphetamines and phenobarbital, which is basically, I'm pretty sure, meth and sedatives, essentially. So, not a I think phenobarbital's a barbiturate. So, in I don't even know what your heart would do with both of those. I don't either. I mean, probably why it was almost lethal. Whatever that combo does to you, it's not good. So, his speeches, which were being piped over speakers that were all over the compound at nearly 
all hours of the day, they were becoming dark and incoherent. And he was reporting to them that America had fallen into chaos. So, like, he literally had dropped off the deep end. He's blabbering all over the place, making shit up. And just constantly talking to his followers. Constantly. His Mm -hmm. voice is being, like, burrowed into their brains. It's all they're being exposed to. Oh, yeah. He's fucking gone batshit. He literally had gone batshit. So temple members also had their passports and medication confiscated, and they were being plagued by mosquitoes and different tropical diseases because they're in South America and they're in the the fucking jungle. They're in the jungle. Like, this is not something that they're used to being in California. There's also armed guards that are patrolling the compound. And again, members are being encouraged to inform on one another. And they're also being forced to attend these long late night meetings. The letters and phone calls they would send to loved ones back in the States were being censored. And then Jones had his own throne built in the compound's main pavilion. And he would compare himself to Vladimir Lenin and Jesus. He also was convinced that the government, the media, and everyone else outside the compound were just there to destroy him. Anytime one person tries to, one person or one group tries to limit the information you get and be like, oh, we are the only ones that hold truth, you need to look really hard at that. I know. But um, one last thing that he would make them do is he required his members of the People's Temple to participate in mock suicide drills in the middle of the night to prepare them for what may come and what eventually did come. Oh my god. Well, have you poured yourself a fresh glass? Because I'm about to get into what happened that day. Yes, I have, and I let's let's do it. Okay. So they're there in Guyana, and in November 1978, US Congressman Leo Ryan traveled to Guyana. He wants to check out, like, what is the People's Temple doing down there, and what's going on at Jonestown Compound? Curiosity, gotta figure it out. Orion had actually been friends with a People's Temple member whose mutilated body had been found two years prior in 1976, and since then, he and several other U.S. representatives had taken an interest in the cult. So at this point, it's not only that it's this widely known cult, It's that he had a personal connection to someone who had been mutilated. Mm -hmm. Like, what's up with that? What's actually going on in Jonestown? Reports coming out of Jonestown suggested that it was far from the racism and poverty-free utopia that Jim Jones had sold all of the People's Temple's members on. And so Ryan decided to check it out. He wanted to see what these conditions were for himself. He was also investigating rumors that some members of the cult were being held against their will and that some were being subjected to physical and psychological abuse, which we know now was exactly what was going on. Yeah, he was on the right track. Baby, he was born this way. He knew he knew it, and he just needed to visit and prove it. Yeah. So he flies to Guyana along with a delegation of 18 people, including several other members of the press, and he wanted to meet with Jones and his followers. 
Yeah, just have a little, have a chit chat. Just a little meet and greet, just a little check in. You know, obviously, a meet and greet. <laughs> he's, he brought his book, you know, to to do some signings. Uh, he's going to take photographs. They had this <laughs> Live Nation backdrop behind them. It was, you know, they had sold tickets. It, it was going to be good. But think it was about the it, Guyana live tour. Well, if you think about it, you know, Jones is, you know, he's he's very paranoid at this point in time. So I'm sure that paranoia is there. But because Ryan was a congressman, he has, you know, essentially a reason to go down and visit and enough of an excuse to make this seem like it could potentially be legit. But Jones wasn't fooled and he was paranoid as fuck at this point. I know. Even if it is just like, oh, hey, I'm just visiting family members or whatever. I'm sure Jim Jones would have been like, oh, fuck no. Exactly. Obviously, you're here to like, I don't know, kidnap me and feed me to the Illuminati. Basically. And so Ryan traveled to Guyana's capital of Georgetown on November 14th. And then he arrived in Jonestown on November 17th. So we've got Georgetown, Jonestown. Yeah, just... (laughs) Making that distinction between the two. some names. So on November 17th, Ryan and the reporters that came with him were welcomed into Jonestown at the compound. And to their surprise, there was a dinner planned and an evening of entertainment. And Jones totally agreed to meet with the reporters, a.k.a. not the dude's first rodeo. He knows how to respond to this type of thing. You know what this is just giving me parallels to are when you have like diplomats or people with cameras that visit North Korea today. Yeah. And they're like, oh, here are your handlers. Oh, we're going to all these events. Look how happy everyone is. Let's talk to this family. And this girl who's six is going to perform on the piano for eight hours. And we're just so proud. And it's like, this is fucking weird and staged. And I don't like this. That's I'm getting DPNK vibes here. Well, and even take it down another level just to like the holidays when your family visits and you put on a show. You want to seem like everything's (laughs) okay and like the world is fantastic. You want to talk about your achievements. You want to talk about what's going well. You don't want to talk about the reality that's like, oh, by the way, I lost my job six months ago. I'm actually really struggling right now. Your Christmas presents are DIY, not because I wanted to be cute, but because I'm fucking broke. No, that's, that's also the reality. You, it's all about saving face. It is. And that is what Jones is doing. Like, he is trying to save face. I'm sure he knows all about the quote-unquote rumors that are going around. Oh, yeah, because they're fucking true. Yeah. Like, he's not an idiot. He may be losing it. He may be batshit at this point. But he's not an idiot. Which is yeah. absolutely terrifying. To have someone who's batshit and real smart, fucking scary. That I 100% agree. Also very much Joker vibes. You know? Oh, yes. So, Ryan gets there, and because of this, like, pony show, or show and pony, whatever that fucking phrase is, it's... That's not (laughs) pony show. (laughs) I don't know if that is the phrase or not, but... Maybe it's show and pony. I don't know. I don't think I'm... Show horse? You know? I think pony show is the... I think that sounds right, but God. Regardless, Ryan is impressed. Conditions were were lean, but he felt like the vast majority of cultists seemed to be generally wanting to be there. Again, it's still seen as a cult, but everyone he's seeing seems like they're having a good time. Like, that's what they want. There were, however, several members that asked to leave with his delegation. And Ryan reasoned that about a dozen of the 600 or so adults 
that were there that was not cause for concern. It's like, okay, so 12 out of the 600 people there, like, he's like, okay, well, that's not... That's not a reason to be concerned. Yeah. Well, of the 600 adults. and Right, adults. Um, but no, I mean, that's so few people. I mean, if you had a group of 600 people and you were like, you could find 12 people who wanted to leave literally any situation. You could go to a concert and grab 600 people and be like, all right, who doesn't want to be here? Tw- at least 12 people would raise their hands. Probably more. And so it's interesting, though, we talked about earlier how a thousand out of twenty thousand is so significant and how twelve out of six hundred isn't but it's because just the difference of a thousand you know five percent of people literally moving across the to another country versus what two percent of people being like like actually yeah we'd like to head back i mean yeah yeah shit which is not to be unexpected but Jim Jones was devastated. Even though it may have only been a dozen or so, and Ryan was like, hmm, not cause for concern. Jones was concerned. And so despite Ryan's assurances that his report would be favorable, Jones was convinced that the People's Temple had failed the inspection and Ryan was going to call the authorities. So again, he's paranoid. He is so paranoid. Oh, yeah. That next day, Ryan was set to go back to the United States, and several temple members who wanted to leave the compound boarded his delegation's truck in order to accompany him back to the United States. These are, again, the people who were just, they were ready to go home. They're like, yeah, actually, you know, my mom's in the hospital. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bounce. I'm gonna head back. Yeah, like, I need to go back to the States. I've got some life to take care of. Or, like, hey, I moved down here. Thanks for the experience, but I'm done. It's not for me. I just, I really miss my life as, like, a financial analyst, and I think that really is my calling. I'm gonna get out of the jungle, and these mosquitoes give me, like, dengue fever. (laughs) Seriously, though, they were just like, okay, bye! Unfortunately, other members of the People's Temple attacked Ryan shortly before the vehicle left the compound. Ryan escaped unhurt, and the truck continued with Ryan aboard. So, a little bit of a hiccup, but they got out. Yeah. And, again... I mean, that, to me, might not be too much cause for concern. I guess I don't really know in what way they were attacking them, but it could be like a, oh, wait, what? Pam, this is the first time I'm hearing you're leaving. No. Like, and, you know, people being upset that people that they see are this close are defecting in their mind, but I guess it would depend on how they attacked the truck. I don't know. I agree. However, when they got to the airstrip, temple members then launched a full attack And five people, including Ryan and three members of the press, were shot and killed. And 11 others were wounded. So while that first attack may have seemed small and no reason for concern, that was only the beginning. It was like, if that didn't work, they had plans for something much larger. Well, and I mean, I guess they also could have attacked with gunfire when they were leaving the compound. I I don't know. I don't either. Um, But... God damn. So he died. He did. He died. And the same day as the murders on the airstrip, Jones told his followers that soldiers would come for them and torture them. So he's using this visit from Ryan, again, who's a congressman, and trying to, 
I, I feel like I, I see these connections he's making in his head. He's like, okay, this congressman came and he's taking some people with him. That definitely means soldiers are going to come for us and they're going to torture us. And he told them that the authorities would be parachuting in at any moment. And he sketches like... A vague picture of this horrible fate at the hands of the deranged, corrupt government. Because again, you have to remember, he has been telling people in Guyana at Jonestown that America has is like in ruins. It's gone to shit. It's the worst place ever. Yeah. I mean, it's. I'm imagining he's painting a tale of like, America is now Hunger Games or Handmaid's Tale or some other nope. post-apocalyptic novel of your choice. Like... It's exactly what he's doing. Um, he encouraged his congregation to die now rather than face this torture. And so he said to them, this is a quote, die with a degree of dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down in tears and agony. I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear. I don't care how many anguish cries. Death is a million times preferable to 10 more days of this life. If you knew what was ahead of you, You'd be glad to be stepping over tonight. Fuck. It's so dark. It's so... I can't even imagine being in a group and having the leader just say, you may as well kill yourself because this is not worth it. Yeah, just the level of sheer manipulation and stuff is yeah. terrifying. And how he tries to make this act of suicide sound like it is basically a freedom from this world that's about to just go to shit. Even though, for these people, unfortunately, they already are in shit. Some of them just don't yeah. realize it. But, I mean, if you are being led by someone you fully 100% believe, I'm imagining they're thinking they are moments away from either army people parachuting in, possibly from the, like, nuclear bombs being dropped on them. I mean, they're like, okay, this is actually the end. Because, I, I mean, I'm someone who, like, let's be real, if, like, nuclear war actually breaks out and the atomic bombs start dropping, I am, like, probably gonna be the one to be like, alright, deuces, I'm out. I'm not gonna be one to, like, try to survive in the wasteland. So, I can absolutely see how, for so many people, this decision, which from the outside and from what we know holistically is like the most irrational and horrifying decision to them at this time seems a hundred percent rational and obviously the better way to go out. It does. I mean, and they're, they're listening to him. And so on November 18th is when the Jonestown massacre takes place. And Jones released a radio order for temple members outside the compound to all commit suicide. Shortly thereafter, after his announcement, Jones enacted his revolutionary suicide plan at the compound, which, like Tyler said earlier, this is the one that members had practiced in the past, in which a fruit drink was laced with cyanide, tranquilizers, and sedatives, which is a shit ton to put into a, just anything. Yeah. And just so everyone knows, it was actually flavor aid that was used. It wasn't Kool-Aid. I don't know what the hell flavor aid is. Another kind of powdered fruit I mean, punch. yeah. I'm... But I'm just saying, like, trying to save face for Kool-Aid, even though, unfortunately, that happened. And it's always going to be Kool-Aid in people's minds. But just wanting you guys to know it was actually flavor aid, in case you were wondering. 
I think, I mean, to be completely honest, I don't know this for sure, but I don't think Flavor Aid exists anymore. And this is probably why. I mean, I would imagine. Like, I don't think that is something that you could recover from. Uh, actually, I just looked it up. It turns out, uh, it is still around. And it is made by the Gel Cert Company in Chicago. Introduced in 1929. Sold throughout the U.S. as an unsweetened powdered concentrate drink mix similar to Kool-Aid. So. You know what? I'm glad favorite flavor aid survived this because yeah on i mean as someone who works in like branding and advertising this is literally your worst fucking nightmare (laughs) well apparently and the um in the reports of like afterwards of the massacre criminal investigators that testified talked about finding packets of kool-aid and eyewitnesses talked about having the Kool-Aid. So that's one of the big reasons why it's regarded as, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid and like that's what's known. So probably that misstep or that mistake might have uh saved Flavor Aid. Saved saved the brand Flavor Aid. Well, and Kool-Aid's still around because I mean they're big enough to get through something like that. Obviously, I mean Tylenol was big enough to get through the poisonings in Chicago. Like Yeah. So it's just that's interesting. It's similar to here in Texas when we talk about like, oh, I'd like a Coke. What do you want? Dr. Pepper. Because Coke is what we call soda. Yeah. Or Kleenex. It's actually tissue. Uh, things yeah. that become like a definitive word in our vocabulary. Kool-Aid is the one for the powdered drink. Yeah. No one's like, oh, do you have a flavored powdered beverage drink? No. No, that's weird. It is. It's like, do you have Kool-Aid? Yes. So Yeah, here, it's bag of flavor aid. <laughs> exactly. So back to Jonestown and this fucking massacre. Yeah, so we're in the middle of the massacre right we're now. We're in the middle of it. The plan was to first squirt this, you know, flavor aid cocktail into the mouths of babies and children via a syringe, and then the adult oh. members would drink it. So, like, literally, these children and these babies, that's murder. Yeah, because that's they, straight up murder. they had no say in what was happening to them. They were just told to, like, yeah. be quiet, let's do this. Yeah. The audio of Jones's speech and the ensuing suicide actually survives today, which is beyond terrifying. Ugh. I can see the benefits only in the fact that it was evidence of what happened and they have more information than they would have without it. But there is absolutely no part of me who ever, ever, ever would want to hear this ever. No. I mean, the sound of all these people dying, dying. And it's not like it's a, Oh, you like fall asleep, death. Like cyanide's pretty fucking violent. It's extremely violent. And so on this tape, you can hear a really exhausted Jim Jones say, He sees no way forward, and he's tired of living and wants to choose his own death. There's one woman that confronts him, and she courageously disagrees. She says... I love her. Yes. She is, like, trying to be the voice of reason before this massacre takes place. Yeah. She says that she's not afraid to die, but she thinks that the children at least deserve to live, and that the people's temple should not give up and let their enemies win. Which, so courageous. I know, and also I'm like, yeah, no, that's 
That's a logical argument. It is, but Jones tells her the children deserve peace, and the crowd shouts the woman down, telling her she's just afraid to die. So they're using... They are... Because she seems like someone who's fully committed, but she's like, hey, I'm totally okay with doing this, but I don't think we should make the children do it. Yeah, she's not saying like, oh... The kids should live and, God, they're going to need someone, I guess me, because I thought of it, to take care of them. Everyone, y'all should die. She's like, nah, I'm totally down. I believe in the cause. I believe what's happening. But, like, the kids need to be able to choose their own path. And instead, the entire crowd is just like, oh, whatever. You're just scared. You're just scared. And then the group of people who killed Ryan return from killing him. And they announce their victory. And the debate with Jones and the woman and, like, the crowd yelling at her, it ends, and Joan begs someone to hurry up the medication. So those that were administering the drugs, these are people, you know, perhaps with the syringes that were given to children. And this is known, again, in the audio, he's not saying, like, go get the syringes. We know this because they were found uh, as, like, waste on the grounds of the compound. Yeah, and that's something I definitely think if you really want to see it. There are a lot of pictures of the aftermath of Jonestown. They are heart-wrenching. I mean, it's all of these people dead, and it's, again, violent deaths. So, you know, definitely really think if you actually want to look at it. But there's lots of photos from, like, from the investigators coming through and documenting what happened. Yeah, and I, I think Tyler looked at them. I didn't. I just, it was... The description was enough. Did you look at him? Yeah. I mean, you saw him. I did. I looked at him. I looked at a few and then stopped because it was, it was a lot. It was a, it was too much. Well. I was like, mm, no, I have the idea. I know what happened. I'm good. Yeah. And your warning to me is why I was like, mm I, I like tried yeah. to make sure in my research I was able to skirt those and, and not, not view them because that was not something I, I wanted to see, like, to be honest, it's one of those things that what I'm picturing in my head is horrific enough. I don't need to see the reality. Yeah. I mean, I will say I'm someone who likes to see images and pictures and video, like, of these horrible things because it, to me, it helps ground it not only as something that is real and actually happened, but it helps me more develop a full understanding of, like, what did this look like? What happened? But... This, I mean, I'm someone who, you know, very much is interested in, like, 9-11 documentaries and, like, seeing that footage of the day and everything, but the the images and footage of Jonestown, that was too much for me. Well, and normally I'm the same way. I I look at them because it makes it more real to see, like, this actually happened. But with this one, the children, the syringes, I just, I, I couldn't. So these people who are administering the drugs, um, you can hear them on the tape assuring the children that the people that had ingested the drug, they're, they're not crying because they're in pain. It's only that the drugs are a little bitter tasting. So like they think it's yucky. And so the children are like, oh God, I hate yucky things. I, I would probably cry too. Like, that makes sense, yeah. Others expressed their sense of obligation to Jones. Uh, They wouldn't have made it this far without him, and they're now taking their lives out of duty. Again, another reason I literally just can't imagine hearing this. Just the people crying, the children crying, the people administering the drugs, reassuring the children, and then other people... (sighs) 
expressing their, like, obligation to him. Like, all of this is happening at the same time. It's just so horrifying, because it's not like this is a group of bad people. I mean, it is a group of... People. Literally brainwashed people, and... It's horrifying because you juxtapose it. You're like, these people know exactly what they're doing. They're squirting this poison into these kids' mouths to murder them. But they've been so brainwashed and so led to believe everything that Jim Jones says and that they are fully 100% committed to the idea that they are just saving the kids. They're, and that's, Yeah, they're doing what's like, best for them. Obviously, this is fine. Like, this is normal. We're saving them. Yep. And it's, it's horrifying because it's normal everyday people and to me it just goes to show how susceptible literally everyone is to brainwashing and this type of coercion absolutely i mean it's so scary to think about but you just have to be so aware and even if you're aware you're still susceptible yeah and just don't be in a cult people don't join a cult Um, so also on the tape, you can hear people, clearly those who have yet to ingest the poison, wonder why the people who have had the poison and are dying, that they look like they're in pain when they feel like they should be happy. Like they're all doing this together. Bitch, cyanide hurts. Yeah. There is one man that is grateful that his child won't be killed by the enemy or raised by the enemy to be a dummy. So are you fucking kidding me to be yeah. a dummy yeah that that's what he's he like well i'd rather have a dead child than one that's dumb okay so he's he's a bad person he's one of the bad people there's a few of them sprinkled in he's one of them well and he's also just extremely brainwashed he is extremely brainwashed that's so fucked up though then on the audio uh i think i said video earlier thank god it's not a video it's just audio which is honestly even more creepy i don't know because you have to like your imagination puts the picture together of what happened but jones is heard begging everyone to just hurry up he tells the adults to stop being hysterical and exciting the screaming children and then the audio ends oh and with that i need to fill up my wine fair jesus i mean yeah no i put the rest of the my glass now contains the rest of the bottle is it filled up like a uh, 38-year-old soccer mom on a hard Wednesday? Yes, it yes, is. Yes, it is. Yeah, because we're going to need this. I'm about to get into uh, what happened when they discovered what had happened. So the next day, November 19th, when the um, Guyana authorities showed up, they expected resistance. You know, guards and guns and a really irate Jim Jones waiting at the gates. But when they got there, it was a very eerily quiet scene and one of the reports was quoted as saying all of a sudden they start to stumble and they think that maybe these revolutionaries place logs on the ground to trip them up and now they're going to start shooting from ambush and then a couple of the soldiers look down and they can see through the fog and they start screaming because there are bodies everywhere almost more than they can count and they're all horrified as soon as i like read and like saw and i'm sure when you heard the line they thought they were logs it's like oh my god they're not they're bodies yeah however when they found jim jones's body it was clear that he had not taken the poison he watched all of his followers in agony and he chose instead to shoot himself in the head there is that i mean this is probably gonna sound horrible but like at least he did kill himself you know he didn't just Mm -hmm. watch them all die and then like hop in a jet and leave 
Yeah, I mean, it's the quote-unquote captain going down with the ship kind of thing. It is. Um, and yes, it, he did take the quote-unquote easier way out. I mean, it's still horrifying. And like we've talked about time and time again, yeah. multiple people get shot in the head and survive. It frustrates me that he preaches this whole thing and then doesn't go down in the same way. Agreed. He put people through this mm-hmm. and then couldn't even follow through with what he was yeah. preaching. And it's one thing, you know, yeah, it's easier to drink a cup of Flavor Aid than to, like, put a, pull a trigger next to your head. But it's not like everyone drank the Kool-Aid at the same time and had no idea what was about to happen to them. These are people that are having to make this decision after watching their friends, their, the people they've been spending all this time with, literally in agony in front of them. Which is one thing I didn't know prior to research. I really did think that everyone like had their cup and they were like, all right, cheers and drink it. I didn't realize it was like passed around like communion. Like this is a sick type of communion that they did. That is, yes, that is exactly what it is. Oh God. Where the tray was just passed throughout the congregation Except in this case, it was poison. And so you would see the people in the front start to suffer. And it was like this this wave that goes throughout the congregation. Yeah. Well, and there are pictures that, in the pictures you can see, of the big-ass pot of juice. And it gives such, like, creepy, eerie, like, summer camp vibes. Because it's, you know, out by these pavilions where all the people are hanging out outside, kind of like summer camp with this grape Kool-Aid or grape flavor aid. Yeah. And it's horrifying. It really is. And around 300 of the dead bodies were children who had been fed the cyanide lace flavor aid by their parents or loved ones or people around them. Another 300 were elderly men and women who depended on the younger cultists for support. Fewer than 100 of the temple members in Guyana survived this massacre, and the majority of survivors had decided they were done and they had left that day, or they were in Georgetown for some type of business or a visit or just they weren't at the compound. The final death toll was 918 people which is the largest loss of civilian life as a result of a deliberate act in American history until 9-11. Jesus. So if you need a comparison, this was huge. Yeah. The next time something this large would happen would be 9-11, which unfortunately the numbers were much larger. But that just goes to show, again, how big that 1,000 people that left was and that Nearly all of them died. Yeah. Officials later discovered a cache of firearms, hundreds of passports stacked together, and $500,000 in U.S. currency. Millions more had reportedly been deposited in banks overseas, and the People's Temple effectively disbanded after the incident and declared bankruptcy at the end of 1978. And To be completely honest, you know, we often don't think of the people of the People's Temple who stayed, but like that, let's say 19,000 people who were still here, they were still together. They were still a community. Mm -hmm. And thank God, after this, they disbanded. Yeah, I just can't imagine the news coming in. You're like, holy shit, that's my friends. That's my family. Yeah. That this happened to. And knowing that... You bought in and you were following the same Mm -hmm. thing, yet they happened to go to Guyana and you didn't. 
And I can only imagine that moment of horror, realizing how sadistic Jim Jones was. For someone who was in the People's Temple, yet still here in the States, seeing what's happening. Yeah. Well, and also that moment of like, holy shit, was was I a part of this? Yeah. Like, did did I contribute to what happened to my friends? Which, I just want to say, it was Jim Jones. It was. Not you. It was no one's fault but his. It was no one's fault. And that is what is so scary, but also something you have to realize is truth when it comes to brainwashing. It's not your fault if you're brainwashed. That's not your fault. Yeah. That is the the leader that you are looking towards. If you need to place fault on anyone, it's them. Yeah. Well, we kind of mentioned this at the beginning where it's like, you know, is it a massacre? Is it suicide? And this is kind of why, because... As much as you want to say, as much as it's easier to be like, oh, well, the person who was squirting the poison to the mouths of the children and murdering them did that. And, you know, you can absolutely argue both ways because yes, but they truly thought they were doing what's right because of Jim Jones' influence and his manipulation and how much he'd done. Because they, he was legitimately seen as basically the second coming. He would do things such as find cancer in people and then pull it out of them. And so the people seeing this would see, and they would see this actual piece of cancer that he pulled out of this person. Actually, what was going on was he was lying to them and tricking them, and it was actually like a piece of rotten chicken or rotten pork or something. So there were these people who, to them, they had legitimately seen these miracles, this religious work happens. So, I mean, of of course they're going to follow him. That's what the teachings, you know, from when they were children, that's what they've been taught to do. And especially the people that were working, doing things like feeding the homeless or running these rehabilitation clinics. It's like, yeah, you can see right in front of us the amazing work we're doing. Obviously, this is our leader. This is who we should follow. This is the second coming. And how can you realistically fault people who have genuinely always been brought up to believe that this is who you need to be looking for? And then for all intents and purposes, that's who they find. You can't. You cannot fault them for this. This is not a problem of the people who were in the people's temple. It was a problem of who was leading them. Yeah. So in... I mean, that's one of the many reasons why this is known as the Jonestown Massacre, because... It was. Jim Jones massacred his people. He was the reason that almost a thousand people died. He's absolutely the reason, and he took the wimp way out of not even doing what he was preaching. Like, yeah, he committed suicide, or someone else shot him. Like, I really don't know. And I don't know if that was really looked into because of what the scene was like the forensics of you know was the ankle of the gun like he did it himself or someone else but you know he just it's like he was a leader who didn't even do what he was asking his followers to do yeah well there was one survivor one guy who was a member of the temple larry layton who was tried in the united states for his involvement in the november 18th events he was found guilty of conspiracy and aiding and abetting in the murder of ryan and the attempted murder of U.S. Embassy official Richard Dwyer, and was sentenced to life in prison. 
However, he was released in 2002. So this was one of the guys who had attacked Ryan and the people who were leaving there on the airstrip. Yeah. Another man, Charles Beekman, pleaded guilty to the attempted murder of a young girl and served a five-year prison term in Guyana, which I feel like it should be longer, but this was in Guyana. I know, five years for attempting to murder a child? Okay. Attempted murder in my head should be more than five years. Attempted murder, I feel like, should be as strict as murder, because it's like your intention was to murder just because you didn't yeah, succeed. Yeah, they survived on their own accord. Exactly. Like, just because you didn't succeed in, in that quest doesn't mean you didn't intend to, so you should still do the same time. So, okay, but maybe that's just Agreed. me. Agreed. Um, maybe that's just us. Yeah, yeah, maybe. So today, nearly 41 years after the massacre, it'll be 41 this November 18th, the event holds a unique place in U.S. history, as well as in the psychology literature on obedience. Again, with obeying your leader, following your leader. I mean, as um, someone who went to school for sociology and criminology, this is right up there with the Stanford experiments when it comes to sociology and psychology of obedience. And if you're not aware, it's the Stanford Prison Experiments where a bunch of, like, young college men, so, like, 18 to 22-year-olds, were put in this experiment. Some of them were given the title of guards, and some of them were given the title of prisons, and basically made their own rules, and it descended into fucking chaos. There are quite a few documentaries on Stanford Prison Experiments. If you've studied uh, sociology or psychology, it's something they go into, because it was a really fucking big deal. It almost shut down Stanford, so... I've never heard of this, and now I feel like I have to go Google it and look this up. Oh my god. It's insane, because it's, I mean, it's these upper middle class kids that are just doing this experiment, and I think it only lasted a few days. By the end of it, they had created their own society, very Lord of the Flies-esque, and they truly were, I mean, in this mental state of like, I am the prison guard, you are the prisoner. They put their classmates through horrible torture and different things. And it was finally shut down because the main researcher, I believe his girlfriend, found out about it and was like, you need to shut this shit down right the fuck now. What year was this? Uh, It was the 70s. Oh my god. Oh yeah, it was not that long ago. I'm sorry, could any of you imagine being in a class where literally it was like, all right, you're a guard, you're a prisoner, and you were literally tortured? I mean, honestly, it's so interesting. Schools do things like this, even today. Obviously not to this extent, but I remember in eighth grade, my school did a Holocaust Remembrance Day. And as part of it, um, you know, we'd been studying the diary of Anne Frank. I believe we had read Night by Elie Wiesel. So it, it, it was something that, you know, we'd been studying. And then we had a day where the students were concentration camp members and the teachers were the guards and would have us do things. Like I remember in my English class, they taped off an area the size of a train car and had the entire 8th grade class try to fit in that space to see, like, yeah, this is what it was like. And then they spent three days doing this. Or there would be times when the teachers all had hole punches, and we had 
little name tags. It's honestly super fucked up, and I don't know how it was a thing, but we would have name tags, and they would hole punch us, um, and that was, you know, quote-unquote getting shot by the guard for random reasons, however they wanted, disobeying, if they just didn't like us, different things like that. And so that was something they did with a bunch of 12 and 13-year-olds, so... That's super fucked up. I get what they were going for, but There are not... better ways to yeah, do it. Yeah, there are other ways. Yeah. Yeah, it was okay. something me and a couple friends a couple years later were talking about it, and we're like, yeah, I didn't realize at the time. That was not okay. I would not have realized it at the time either. It takes... <laughs> no, I mean, I was 12 or 13. It, I was 13, I think. It takes, like, becoming an adult and realizing how fucked up this world really can be uh, to realize things like that are not the way to teach kids how fucked up the world is. Yeah. So there are a dozen articles written every year about Jonestown. And while the phrase... Drink the Kool-Aid has become entrenched in the public lexicon, referencing fellowship at its worst. It is not something we should be using. So when you love your job, you should probably not reference that as I've been drinking the Kool-Aid just because of everything we told you about what that phrase really means. And like, I'm not faulting anyone for using that. I've used it. Oh, I mean, I used it not that long ago. And without really thinking, because it's something that is so much a part of our public lexicon, like you said. Yeah, it's a phrase we all use. And once you know all of the things that actually happened that came to create that phrase being a thing, you don't want to use it. Like, it's not something you want to say. I would rather say something like, oh my god, if it's like one of those companies where you realize, like, oh, God, this is a bad company, and there's someone there that being like, this is great, love my job, fucking fantastic. Don't say they're drinking the Kool-Aid. Say they're, like, really enthralled with what this company is doing. They're really enraptured yeah. with what's going on. I can see what I perceive as the reality of this, or I can see how this is a direction that's, like, not really positive. Or even, I think even using something like, oh, my gosh, you know, they sounds like companies brainwashed you because there's yes. different levels to that. But yeah, no, because I think in our minds, realistically, we need to understand that saying something like, oh, God, I love it here. I guess I drank the Kool-Aid is really the same thing as saying, oh, God, I love it here. I would squirt cyanide into a child's mouth if they told me to, because that's that's what you're saying. When you think about the origins and the reality of that phrase. And it's, we've talked about it earlier. In our second episode, we talked about the phrase going postal. And yep. how as much as people use it as an offhand, I feel like you don't hear it as much today as you would have maybe 10, 15 years ago. You don't because of the amount of mass shootings that we have today. Yeah. People don't say that. But it's, and it's, it's because that phrase comes from... The Edmund Post Office Massacre, where innocent people were murdered at work. And it, and I'm like, mm, you know, that's not an okay phrase. And, you know, saying, like, drinking the Kool-Aid is in the same vein. It is. And not trying to fault anyone for using these phrases. No. Totally have done it myself. But it it's that moment when you come to realize the origins of a phrase and you're like, I Actually, no. That's not funny. That's not comical. 
That's not something to joke about. That actually yeah. happened. And you can only know those things if you take the time to research. So honestly, if there's a phrase that you're using a lot and it's not like some weird, like, I don't know, colloquial whatever, check it out. See where it came from. It, it, like, yeah. Yeah. these terms are something that's in our vocabulary and we should know their origins. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's one of those things, if you had to explain to someone the background and meaning of that phrase, you know, someone who'd never heard of it, make sure that it's a phrase you'd be comfortable. Exactly. And it's like the drinking the Kool-Aid. If someone was like, well, what does that mean? Do you really want to turn to them and be like, oh, I was just comparing um, Brad to the 900 people who were brainwashed and committed suicide by drinking Flavor-Aid when they were in a cult that they didn't realize was a cult in another country and they'd been brought from America and they killed children. Exactly. They killed children. No. So anyway, um, yeah. Honestly, I guess I guess we could sort of head into postmortem. Postmortem in the sense that we just talk about what this was. How fucked up <laughs> and the yeah. yeah. More so, just like um, our like uh, closing statements, essentially. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a case that before going into it, you know, I I knew of Jonestown. I knew it was a bunch of people. They followed Jim Jones. He was crazy. They moved to South America, established a town in his name, and then one day all killed themselves. Right. That was about that was about it. That was about where my knowledge began and ended. I knew there were like deaths of congressmen or important people or something, but I didn't see how the two interlaced. And now I do. Mm. See, I didn't even know of the congressman death, I don't think. I mean, it, it might have been something that I'd heard before, but not really attached to it. To me, it was more but, of a, like, I knew someone important was killed. But I really think in doing the research and diving into what led up to this and the psychology behind it, I think it's so easy to think when we're not in a cult or we're not under the influence of another person like that to be like, God, these people are dumb. Yeah. Like, who would believe that? But really, when you're looking into it and learning more and more, it's like, holy shit. This is, this is absolutely something I could fall for. It's something we could all fall for. Yeah. And I think, to me, that's one of the most horrifying things of this, is because I cannot definitively tell you if I was, you know, me right now in San Francisco in the mid-70s, if I would not have been drawn into this and been a part of it. I agree. I would, I mean, same, I would hope that once the torture and manipulation and violence started, that I would recognize it, but I honestly can't say Because when you truly believe in something, you're blinded to the things that aren't Mm -hmm. good about that thing. And that's why these people were all victims. Every single one of them was a victim. Except Jim Jones. He was a fuck. Jim Jones, not a fucking victim. Everyone else was. This was a murder. Massacre. Absolutely. I don't really like the word suicide being used in reference to Jonestown because it wasn't. It was a mass murder. Because to me, suicide intrinsically has a this was a choice aspect to it. And I really think in aspects of cult manipulation and things like that, I'm like, there's not there's not a choice. There's not there literally was someone who was like, hey, what if we didn't kill the children mm-hmm. who was immediately had the crowd turned on her, yep. completely was overrun and 
So no, there's no part of me that believes that realistically this was something that people had any choice in. No, this choice was taken from them when they were listening to his speeches essentially 24-7. Yeah. Jonestown. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so Jonestown, there y'all go. Let us know if y'all enjoyed us doing a, a big case and kind of splitting it like this. It's something we've talked about few times before and there are just there are a couple cases out there that to really get the entire i think holistic view of yeah it, to really dive deep you, you need two. you gotta have two hours you know or hour and a half of just this case and that's not really something that we can realistically do so let us know if this is something that y'all would want to hear more of in the future. If y'all would like to see us do bigger cases where we kind of split them and both tackle one massive topic. Yeah, if this is something you liked, because like Ty is saying, when we're both doing a case in the episode, one of us can't talk for an hour. Um, <laughs> well, at least we try not to. We try not to have super <laughs> insanely long episodes. <laughs> True. It has happened. Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy. We've done it before. Yeah. But honestly, I think this is a more digestible way and a, a way to really, like you were saying, dive deep into a case. And if, listeners, if you want more information about something, then... Maybe we could pepper in an episode like this every ever so often and just really dive deep into something that deserves a lot of attention and something that our 30 minutes of each talking can't really get into. And if there is a case that you have thought about wanting to send to us, wanting to email us or whatever, um, that you're like, ah, this one's too big. Send it to us. Let us know. Do it. So, bloodandwinepodcast at gmail.com. That's our email. Send it to us. Yes. But if y'all enjoyed this episode, also make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, give us those five stars. Let us know what you liked. That is the number one thing that helps us move up in the rankings, helps other listeners like you find us, and is huge and amazing and so important. It is. Literally just trying to spread the word about blood and wine all across the nation, all across the world. And while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. That's another way that you can share things. Like maybe share when we post about the episode, when it releases. That's a way to get the word out. Um, Ooh, that's something I need to do because <laughs> I'm not good at that. <laughs> Literally, uh, same. Actually, I'm totally guilty of not doing it because I feel like we both like post it and then don't think to share it on our personal accounts. But like, Agreed. like us and follow us. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check us out. Let us know what you think. We're trying to post more photos of like us, uh, because I know we post every single wine we do. Also, if you're needing to look up what the yeah. wine is or want to see what it is, we post all those on social, which makes it a lot easier to find it when you can see what it looks like. Yes. And so let us know if you like seeing my pretty face in all these pictures. Who wouldn't? But um, thank y'all so, so much for tuning in, listening to this episode. We love y'all and could not do this without you. But this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.